At the very heart of any biblical study of the Eucharist has to be the Last Supper. And so here in Lesson 3, we arrive at the heart of the matter. But we won't just barge our way into the upper room. There is still something to attract our attention to pique our appetite on the way there. The previous lesson ended with the second account of Jesus feeding a multitude in Mark, the miraculous feeding of 4,000 people, including women and children, on the predominantly Gentile eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. While the reader of Mark's gospel most probably still has the image of many multiplied loaves of bread in mind as Jesus and the disciples set sail in their boat towards Dalmanutha, wherever that is, the disciples have quickly forgotten. They have brought only a single loaf of bread with them, and maybe it's just my own mental exaggeration, but apparently the thought of having so little bread is enough to make their stomachs growl. Wherever will they find bread to eat in time to stave off starvation? And it's not bad enough that they have to worry about whether they will be able to tear a few hunks of bread from the one measly loaf they have in the boat. Jesus has to make matters worse by talking about the evils of leaven. Watch out. Guard against the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. The disciples think he is talking about leaven on purpose because they haven't enough bread. We seem to be missing something in their logic, but it could be that they think he is telling them that because they haven't brought in sufficient bread, they better get used to the idea of fasting. But if that's the case, why the mention of the Pharisees and Herod? Just before they set sail, Mark records that Pharisees had approached Jesus and engaged him in argument. What sign can he perform that might convince them that he truly is acting on God's behalf? The Pharisees are wondering, of course, whether Jesus really thinks he is the Messiah, and if so, what proof can he give? This confrontation seems to have disturbed Jesus deeply enough that he is still pondering it while the disciples are busy thinking ahead to their next meal. N.T. Wright, one of the foremost biblical scholars of our day and a retired Anglican Bishop of Durham, England, has a very interesting take on all this. At issue, he says, is the nature of Jesus' mission. As the Messiah, Jesus is determined to invite the children of Israel to experience the reality of God's kingdom, the reality of a life lived in the presence of God who desires to heal their illnesses, feed their hunger, and forgive them their sins. Sinners are graciously invited to dine in the kingdom of God that Jesus announces. But Jesus is not the only Jew in Israel that is talking about the kingdom of God. Many have their own ideas about the kingdom and how to help its entry into the world. And the loudest of these groups is represented by the Pharisees and the Sadducees. In this passage, the Sadducees are symbolized by Herod. Their visions of the kingdom are, if the disciples should confuse it with Jesus' vision of the kingdom, like a dangerous leaven that would defile the pure bread Jesus has been trying to feed them. The Pharisees envision a kingdom that only calls the righteous to enter, and they cannot imagine a kingdom that hasn't been liberated from Roman occupation. In stark contrast is the leaven of the Sadducees, who have aligned themselves with Herod and the Roman authorities 
because they provide the temple and its priesthood security and protection. Wright insists that Jesus knows that the kingdom of God cannot be established through violent overthrow, nor by compromising the kingdom of God's independence from any king or authority other than God. So Jesus tells his disciples to beware of thinking that the kingdom of God is anything like what the Pharisees or Herod think it will be. In fact, Jesus knows that his efforts to proclaim the nearness of God's kingdom will bring him to the cross. But because he has taken the suffering servant passages of Isaiah 49 through 53 to heart, Jesus also knows his death will usher in the kingdom in power. And so before examining the Last Supper in the Synoptic Gospels, we encounter this magnificent prelude in the discussion of bread and leaven. Bread for Jesus is a special sign of God's kingdom, and it is also a sign of Jesus' impending death. Thus Mark has been preparing us for a last meal with Jesus. Every gospel except John presents the Last Supper as a Passover meal. John states quite clearly that Jesus died on the day the Passover lambs were slaughtered in the temple. Many, but by no means all scholars, tend to think that John is more historical than the Synoptic Gospels on this matter. What should we make of this? There are theories that try to reconcile the two. We know that the Essenes, the Jewish ascetics in the desert, kept a different calendar from the one followed in the temple. It is theoretically possible that some Jews during the time of Jesus' ministry celebrated Passover on different dates from each other. If that's true, then both John and the Synoptic Gospels could be technically correct in using their own dating of the Last Supper. But to complicate matters, both the Synoptic Gospels and John say that Jesus died on the day of preparation. But John is referring to the day of preparation for the Passover and the Synoptic Gospels refer to the day of preparation for the Sabbath. Observant Jews had to prepare for both. Before the Passover, they had to remove leaven from their houses, and before the Sabbath, they had to prepare the evening meal, for no work could be done once the sun had set. Is it possible that what stuck in Christian memory is that Jesus died on Preparation Day, but that which Preparation Day was forgotten? It might be possible, but there are other possibilities to consider. One that is frequently offered is that the Last Supper wasn't in fact a Passover meal, but rather a Jewish festive meal, which had striking similarities to the Passover meal, but which could have been celebrated by Jews who were anticipating the Passover, knowing they would be unable to celebrate it together on the actual date. The Synoptic Gospels, however, insist that the Last Supper was a true Passover meal. Some scholars have suggested a rather interesting solution to the discrepancy between John and the Synoptic Gospels. They suggest that Jesus was indeed celebrating the Passover with his disciples on the night of the Last Supper, but that he was doing so before the actual date set for the Passover. This would be a rather unorthodox practice, but perhaps not unthinkable. If Jesus knew his arrest was imminent and that he would be taken away from his disciples before they could celebrate the Passover together, he might have chosen to celebrate it with them ahead of time. So perhaps Jesus knew that it would indeed be his last supper 
and that during it he intended to offer his life to them as a sign of what Luke earlier tells us Moses and Elijah called his exodus, that is, his Passover. Given the subsequent centrality of the disciples' faith in Jesus as the risen Messiah, they would then have no problem naming the timing of the Last Supper as occurring on the Passover. It was, after all, when Jesus celebrated his last Passover with them. It is interesting that John doesn't even bother to tell us any detail about the meal other than that during it, Jesus dipped a morsel of bread and handed it to Judas. As will become perfectly clear in Lesson 5, John firmly and clearly proclaims the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist. But John completely ignores the Last Supper as the event during which the Eucharist was instituted. For John, Jesus' death is the ultimate Passover event. In the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus' offering of bread and wine during the Passover meal as his very life is the ultimate celebration of Passover. Both are saying exactly the same thing, that Jesus' death is what Passover will mean for his disciples and all his followers for all time to come. The important fact to get straight about the Last Supper is the fact that it is for us the Lord's Supper, and it, whenever it occurred, is our Passover. In the Lord's Supper, in the Eucharist, we proclaim Jesus' death until he comes again. The conclusion this leads me to is that both the Synoptic Gospels and John are attesting to a theological reality about the death of Jesus. Both are asserting that Jesus' death on the cross is the Christian Passover. In John, we discovered that the ultimate Passover is when the Lamb of God took away the sins of the world on the cross. In the Synoptic Gospels, we learn that Jesus gave us his life and death in an act of anticipation and dedication during what was to become our Passover meal, one that is ours to experience whenever we celebrate the Lord's Supper in memory of him. The commentary gives us a fairly detailed account of how the Passover would most probably have been celebrated during Jesus' ministry with his disciples. When we pull out all the details the Synoptic Gospels give us concerning the Last Supper, we can fit those details into an outline of a Passover meal. But we also note that the Gospels omit many of the details that would have been part of a Passover meal. Some of these include ritual washings, a detail that might be picked up in John in his focus on the washing of the disciples' feet rather than the meal itself. The menu associated with the Passover includes a set of specific items. We read some of these plainly in Exodus. Your lamb must be a year-old male and without blemish. You may take it from either the sheep or the goats. They will consume its meat that same night, eating it roasted with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. The bitter herbs become standardized by the time of the second temple, and by then there are set times for the drinking of wine. Up to four specific cups are mentioned in later Haggadahs, that is, readings for the Passover Seder meal. In the Last Supper accounts, Matthew and Mark only mention one cup of wine, and no mention is made of the lamb or the bitter herbs. Luke distinctly mentions a second cup of wine as the wine Jesus offers as the new covenant in his blood, which he and Paul refer to 
as the cup after supper. According to many scholars, this would probably be the third cup of wine described in later Jewish Passover accounts. Given their insistence that Jesus was celebrating the Passover with his disciples, why have they omitted so many details belonging to the Passover meal in their accounts of the Last Supper? The reason? The evangelists were communicating the essential facts of the meal that connected directly to their community's celebration of the Eucharist. In other words, by the time Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written, Christians were accustomed to specific liturgical practices as part of their celebration of the Lord's Supper. And it is those practices that the evangelists focus on when they wrote down their accounts of the Last Supper. While the Last Supper came before the disciples broke bread in memory of Jesus as he commanded, it is the way that they settled on breaking bread together in his memory that most influenced their accounts of the Last Supper. This should be even clearer to us when we consider that Paul's account of the Last Supper in 1 Corinthians is actually our first written account, predating the earliest written gospel by at least 10 years. It gets even more interesting when we compare Paul's account of the Last Supper with those in the Gospels. Such a comparison reveals that Paul bears the most resemblance to Luke's account, and yet Luke's was the last account to be written down. There are at least three important conclusions that seem safe for us to draw from all this. First, we see that the celebration of the Lord's Supper was a regular central part of Christian worship from very early on. Second, we can conclude that liturgical norms for celebrating the Eucharist developed rather quickly. Finally, we see that those liturgical norms remained recognizable as time passed. The commentary offers us a summary of what appears in each of the Gospel accounts of the Last Supper, as well as Paul's account in 1 Corinthians. When we see what they all have in common and compare them with our modern liturgical canons for celebrating Eucharist, it is safe to say that the tradition which Paul said he received from the Lord and faithfully handed on to the church in Corinth has also been faithfully handed on to us. The Pauline churches and those associated with Matthew, Mark, and Luke all celebrated Eucharist by remembering that on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, blessed or gave thanks for the bread, broke the bread, identified the bread as his body, he took a cup and announced that the cup is his covenantal blood. It is important to understand, however, that just because these four accounts tell of a similar liturgical tradition used in various New Testament era churches, that doesn't mean other Christian assemblies of the time didn't have very different liturgical practices. The Didache is a document that may even be as old as 1 Corinthians. Some have wondered why it didn't make its way into the New Testament and instead disappeared for over 1,400 years. The Didache records a Eucharistic liturgy that is vastly different from the Last Supper accounts. Listen, if you will, to Paul Bradshaw's translation of this very early instruction concerning the celebration of the Eucharist. About the thanksgiving, give thanks thus. First, about the cup. We give thanks to you, our Father, for the holy vine of your child David, which you have made known to us through your child Jesus. Glory to you forevermore. 
and about the broken bread. We give thanks to you, our Father, for the life and knowledge which you have made known to us through your child Jesus. Glory to you forevermore. As this broken bread was scattered over the mountains and when brought together became one, so let our church be brought together from the ends of the earth into your kingdom. For yours are the glory and power through Jesus Christ forevermore. Next, after admonishing that only the baptized are to receive the Eucharist, it adds, We give thanks to you, Holy Father, for your holy name, which you have enshrined in our hearts, and for the knowledge and faith and immortality which you have made known to us through your child Jesus. Glory to you forevermore. You, Almighty Master, created all things for the sake of your name and gave food and drink to humankind for their enjoyment, that they might give you thanks. But to us, you have granted spiritual food and drink and eternal life through your child Jesus. Above all, we give you thanks because you are mighty. Glory to you forevermore. Amen. Whenever we hear the word thanks or thanksgiving in this prayer, the root word is Eucharist. There is no doubt that the bread and the wine are considered spiritual food, but nowhere in the Didache is there mentioned a link to the Last Supper or an identification of the bread and the wine with Jesus in his death on the cross. What is emphasized is the unity of God's people that occurs in the common reception of the Eucharist. But is that enough to say that it was the same Eucharist that the churches of the Synoptic Gospels and Paul's letters celebrated? Eugene Lavertier says that everything indicates that it was not. From a Christological point of view, their Eucharistic tradition was too poor. A real Eucharist would have referred to the passion and death of Christ, to the risen Lord, and to his body and blood. One thing is certain. As Christianity grew and spread across the Roman Empire, the Eucharistic liturgy that was faithfully handed on grew out of the traditions reflected in Paul and the Synoptic Gospels, not that found in the Didache. But that said, the Didache is unquestionably an early Christian document of tremendous importance in enlightening us to the breadth, depth, and diversity among early Christian communities. Nevertheless, it also demonstrates that our authentic traditions are the ones that get passed on from generation to generation, and those that don't quite manage to connect us to the very heart of our faith will get lost in the sands of time.